Hi, I'm Rachna. I'm Natalie. And I'm Christy. And welcome to the Triage Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Triage. I'm Natalie. And I'm Christy. And we're so excited to have you back on another really important episode of the Triage. We are going to be talking about the social determinants of health today, which is something we started talking about in our last episode, Racism is a Public Health Issue. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that one, I definitely recommend checking it out. And basically what we talked about last time was how race and and different social aspects of life that affect your health, how those two um, interact. So just to uh, review, the social determinants of health are economic stability, neighborhood and physical environment, education, food, community, and our healthcare system. So all of these different factors come together and affect health. So today we're going to be talking about neighborhood and physical environment. And we have a really exciting announcement. So on our Instagram, we talked about how in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement, we wanted to match 100 likes on one of our Instagram posts to a $100 donation, and we picked an organization, we picked the Okra Project. And the Okra Project is a collective that seeks to address the global crisis faced by black trans people by bringing home-cooked, healthy, and culturally specific meals and resources to black trans people wherever we, we, speaking as the Okra Project, can reach them. That's a direct uh, quote from their mission statement from their website, and we're so excited to um, make a hundred dollar donation, um, from the triage. So thank you to everybody who liked our Instagram picture for that campaign. Yes. Thank you everyone. And what's interesting about the, uh, mission of the Okra project is that as you can see, like bringing home cooked, healthy, cultural specific meals to black trans people, a lot of those different ideals match with the social determinants of health. And it just shows you how important those different factors lead to health outcomes. So thank you everyone so much for helping us contribute to that organization. And that conversation on this podcast isn't stopping there. Uh, We're going to keep that going as we move through these different social determinants of health and through the other topics that we'll be talking about. So stay tuned for that. Um, In addition to announcing the donation, We also always like to arm you with some sort of industry update or healthcare policy update. And an important industry update from this past week is that big health insurance companies in the U.S. reported their most successful quarters to date during a pandemic. And so I don't really have much commentary there. Sit with that. Take in uh, that statement. And yeah. That's all I have to say about that is that insurance companies have made their most money during a pandemic where people have lost right. jobs and yeah, it's just not good. I honestly think that's kind of embarrassing. Like they are completely not fulfilling their mission, I feel like, by kind of patting themselves on the back, but also framing it as that, you know, we're all in this together when people don't even have health insurance in this country. Significant portion of people don't have health insurance in the country. So that was just so frustrating to see because I also heard um, someone was breaking it down on Twitter, which I thought was really helpful. And they were talking about how the insurance companies were also spending less money, like 
as well as making more money, they were spending less money on like linking people with care. So Many it's kind of just like a win jobs win. work for those insurance companies. So it's like yes, yes, they were like cutting corners and things that I know of like different organizations and different um, companies that are like yes, we may have to cut corners, but the reason why we're going to not let people go is because they and health insurance is tied to employment as well, and the fact that that just went out the window for the health insurance companies. I, so yeah, everyone keep an eye out on that. Like Christy said, and we're going to talk about, we're going to actually go into a little bit more about how, like we're going to have a future episode about the healthcare system and how that affects your health, which that one I think a little, people are a little bit more familiar with. So that's why today we're going to actually uh, talk more about neighborhood and physical environment because that might not always come to mind when you think of how that will affect like your physical, mental, spiritual, emotional health. And the chart that we're using that we're going to be sharing on our um, Instagram breaks down neighborhood and physical environment as um, housing, transportation, safety, parks, playgrounds, walkability, zip code, and geography. So those are all really interesting components because you might be thinking, hey, how does a park affect my health and we're going to actually answer all of those questions today and something really important as well is that what when someone thinks of the environment recently a common a common um ideology that's been brought up a lot is sustainability and environmentalism and those are incredible ideologies to research and become a part of there are so many different ways that we could be treating our planet better and definitely investing in reusable materials and not shopping at fast fashion and trying to walk more than utilize different like gas releasing vehicles and things all incredible ways um to to make a better impact on the environment but there's also this like unspoken privilege surrounding sustainability environmentalism and also veganism uh, because veganism is also really great for the environment if you practice it the right way, um, for instance, like, you know, using um, different substitutes like almond, not almond milk, actually I want to talk about almond milk, like coconut milk and oat milk are great because the dairy industry is really harmful to the environment, but um, creating almond milk actually requires a lot of water, so it could be wasteful in that regard. So there's also like you have to definitely investigate things there. But the privilege that surrounds it and the wealth is that the sustainable, more environmental, more environmental vegan option isn't always cheaper. In fact, it's now been commodified and is often extremely expensive. Um, shopping at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods is definitely not as accessible or easy for people in low income or even just middle income communities. Uh, ethical fashion dresses can go for like 200 to 300 like upwards of that dollars uh even just like buying a pair of pants or a shirt could and like you could have a price tag of like a cart of like 500 dollars there um and also like recycling programs are def they're an out-of-pocket expense like they're definitely more expensive per month as well so if you are living on a budget like most of us out there like you have to kind of pick and choose like what part of the sustainability and environmental movement you want to take part in which is not accessible at all and that's if you even have that ability to do so and i feel like i've been making small changes over time and that's a privilege in itself that i could 
say, okay, this month I'm going to make a big purchase and buy um, like my shampoo and conditioner in bulk. That way I have less plastic, but there's still plastic in that, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Christy, what are your thoughts on um, this entire movement? I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, you and I both watch YouTube a lot. Um, and I feel like there's been this huge new or quote unquote new culture, mostly among white influencers of thrifting and um, introducing new sustainable branding and new sustainable cooking. And a lot of it comes from a place of privilege and comes from a place of big economic expense to people. And what you said about buying things in bulk up front is so important, especially when we're talking about the pandemic. I mean, when we were told to stock up on food and stock up on different products, a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. So when they were told to stock up on things up front, that was a huge expense to take on. And not everyone can do that uh, in one big purchase. It has to be spread out across different purchases. And, And that is just something that we all need to think about. And I, um, I've seen a few people speak out against uh, about this, um, but one person in particular that I think of is Wawa Gatheru, um, who is a Rhodes Scholar, um, a Truman Scholar, has a bunch of amazing scholarships, uh, just graduated from the University of Connecticut this year, but um, she's a black woman and she talks about how environmentalism and sustainability is a space where a lot of um, a lot of black people have been pushed out of and it's become a very white centric movement. Uh, meanwhile, a lot of indigenous communities are really at the forefront of this movement because they really live off the land. And um, so I'll link one. Uh, we'll link her article in in this show description and highlight her on our Instagram. But it, that's very interesting to think about is that we think that this new movement is new when really it's been around for years and years and years and mostly fronted by by black women and and non-binary um, folks. Absolutely. And opening like Trader Joe's and Whole Foods often have often occurs in gentrified areas, which we're going to talk about a little bit later in the episode as well. And that could lead to the closing of competing, competing supermarkets, just basic supermarkets, which could result in food deserts. And food deserts are when there's a stretch of like land within like um, a town or a city or community where you can't access like fresh food or healthy food. Usually a lot of Fast food chains will take advantage of those spaces and open up because the food is so cheap and accessible and seemingly like a better, quote unquote, better like solution for just a family that is living on a budget, needs to grab food for their children. And like that's it's right across the way. Whereas also too talking about the pandemic and talking about in bulk, if people have to take a bus to a supermarket that's an hour away, I I know I don't know about you, but I can't like carry like more than probably four or five bags with me. How am I supposed to bulk up on like bulk buy food for the next month? You know, I could probably be lucky if I got food for the week. So those are factors that people don't necessarily take into play. Also too, like with the bulk buying um, for the pandemic specifically in that context, like we're not talking about like just like going to Costco. Like we mean like going to like your local grocery store and like buying like a bunch of the same item that's not sold together. Um, a lot of times, a lot of the WIC products and the SNAP products would be purchased without people realizing because they're just 
um, people who don't utilize those um, social services because they just wanted, they're hopping on the bandwagon. They wanted, they want to be prepared. And that's taking away products that some people that utilize those services, those are the only products they could use because they're tagged as WIC or SNAP on the shelves. You could actually see on the shelves like WIC and SNAP. So just keep a lookout for that as well. Um, usually I think the f towards the first three days of the month or so is when people redeem um, different WIC benefits. So just something to keep a, to kind of think about as well. Yeah, and speaking about, you know, stretches of land, like with food deserts that are targeted and honestly left vulnerable from city governments or state governments or countries, um, we're, getting, we're going to provide you with a few examples of how um, environment and how neighborhoods and physical environment lead to worse health outcomes, specifically in the United States or in around the United States. Uh, so the first example, which I know more and more people are learning about, I learned about it through my work with um, cancer, is what is called Cancer Alley in Louisiana. And Louisiana has a lot of um, environmental racism happening in it, of course, and we'll go into that with Hurricane Katrina. But Cancer Alley is an 85-mile stretch of pollution and environmental racism that has led to now some of the highest corona deaths in the country. But folks who live in the stretch of land are 50 times as likely to get cancer than the average American. And that is just an 85-mile wow. stretch of land. Um, and for years, residents here have been suffering from multiple illnesses. And it goes into what a lot of people talk about with when we talk about COVID-19 um, in terms of different risk factors. And risk factor isn't by race. It's about the environment that has yeah. been built around racism. And it doesn't mean that one certain person is genetically... Um, ha genetically has a higher chance of getting a disease or having a disease. It comes from the racism that has been built uh, mostly from white supremacy. And as you can see that physically in spaces like Cancer Alley. Um, and this is not atypical in the United States. There are many parts of the United States and around the world that are affected in this same way. Um, and this comes from where companies and where the government allows people to build manufacturing plants and nuclear plants and put toxic waste and have unclean water um and it's just obviously housing there is going to be cheaper than it's going to be other places and so i just think that cancer alley is such a um terrifying example of what happens in so many places and it's just um I don't know. It's important for everyone to know about. Yeah, honestly, I didn't know about Cancer Alley until we were prepping for this episode. So I think it's something that is really important to highlight. And another um, instance that we're going to talk about that people may also be really familiar with, I think especially more in like our age group, because we were in elementary school when this happened, um, Hurricane Katrina um, in 2006 that hit um, Louisiana mostly, like that's where it was really, like New Orleans was where it really got hit, um, and other parts of Louisiana. And um, 
like just so many houses, like so many homes and community infrastructures and businesses and everything was just completely destroyed, like completely, completely destroyed. And something that we still talk about to this day is how there was such a lack of response from the government on basically every level. And like federal, state and local officials were just all pointing fingers at one each other, one another instead of just taking action and helping people as best they can get back on their feet which did happen over time but the area is still recovering to this day and it's been over almost 15 years it's been almost 15 years um which is wild because it really does feel like yesterday that we were reading like in school like how kids were affected because they didn't have their school and this is a little bit different from um it's different and definitely similar i feel like with with children not having school because of COVID, because this is like the legitimate infrastructure, like being destroyed. Whereas we definitely are going to talk about um, in some later episodes about how access to school, definitely based on privilege, you know, students have to have Wi-Fi to be accessing remote learning. Um, so there's definitely something we're going to talk about, but this is like students being impacted immediately because they just don't have a place to learn and having to be um, displaced, families being displaced, local businesses being destroyed, um, and a lot of residents did not um, heed to initial warnings to evacuate, which put a strain on rescue operations because uh, I'm assuming that it was a lot more people um, that didn't evacuate than they anticipated, so that was definitely a communication issue as well, and like the people that, like a majority of folks who lived in these areas were like, like black and brown people were the, mostly the people who lived in these areas. And it makes you think, well, would have the responses been different if it was a more like, quote unquote, affluent area? Um, so that was just like another example that we wanted to talk about and just explain how um, also like the like reacting to environmental disasters affects um, exactly. people of different races as well. And it's not even just the neglect from the federal government after the natural disaster. It was before. It was the neglect of the levy systems and the lack of funding to the state that just made it so much worse than it could have been if it was if that part of the country had its infrastructure in place before this natural disaster. Yeah, it's just absolutely horrible. Proactive is like just as important, if not, I would say more important, honestly, than how you react to the situation because it's that preparation that ensures that as many lives are saved as possible. And if they felt that people weren't taking the, you know, the initial warning seriously, they should have done something about it. I mean, they could see how many people are leaving and they should have 100% done more. And I'm, I'm hoping that they would think the same. And speaking about doing more, we're going to actually transition into the next uh, natural disaster, which is Hurricane Maria from 2017, which affected so many different places. Um, but we're going to talk about Puerto Rico, as it is a United States territory. And that response from the United States was also very horrifying because they lost power for, like, as a, as a whole for, like, over three months, I think. And... Um, there are still places struggling um, to come back online even after three years. And 
they were just waiting for so long in those three months for like the federal response because this is a U.S. territory like the United States is supposed to quote unquote like take care of them no matter what and here they were um, Trump was throwing paper towels at people when he went to visit it was very disturbing and just questionable of empathy I guess you could say um that was another instance that comes to mind because again it was equally as much of important to be proactive as it is to be retroactive and that brings up so many questions of how the United States treats Puerto Rico as a territory do they clearly they don't treat them with the equal respect as a state and Louisiana is a state and that's how they were treated as well so it definitely comes down to it comes down to so many different factors it comes down to that power dynamic between a territory and it's like like the person, like the people who are in charge of that territory, which is the United States. It comes down to the fact that mostly people of color live in Puerto Rico and the fact that like they're just not treated with equally. Like people in Puerto Rico still don't have voting rights in the United States, but they like are kind of just in this limbo, I guess. Um, so it definitely opened up like a broader conversation that's been happening in Puerto Rico for years upon years. Exactly. And it's a lot of where this issue comes from is the government is the government wanting to save money. And that's not dissimilar to everything that was happening in Louisiana with Cancer Alley and Hurricane Katrina. It also comes into play when we think about the Flint water crisis and also the Dakota Access Pipeline. All of these places were affected because the government and cities wanted to save money. And that's what happened with Flint. Um, it began in 2014 when the city switched its drinking water supply from Detroit system to the Flint River in hopes of saving money. And then this river and water was not treated and tested um, and jeopardized the water quality and health issues in in Flint residence, and this is still going on. It has not yes. gotten better, and it's been six years. Yeah. Little Miss Flint just turned, I think she just turned 16, which is mm-hmm. wild. Little Miss Flint is a young activist, incredible uh, young woman who has just tried, who's been trying, who's been, I'd say succeeding, but her goal is to generate conversation around uh, the human rights crisis in Flint, Michigan, and she's been very successful. Um, she has gained a really strong following on social media, so I definitely recommend um, checking her out just to learn a little bit more about how Flint's doing on a day-to-day basis. Um, but yeah, so when she started, she was really, really young. Um, she wasn't even a teenager yet, so she was a child, and she's still a child, but she just turned 16, which is wild. Um, I hope she had a nice birthday, but yeah, um, and it's sad that children are doing more than the government. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Seriously. Like, I remember the mayor was, like, drinking the water, like, as a as a press, like, a press stunt to just be like, look, the, I'm drinking the water. It's perfectly safe. When he's in a position of power, he has so much money to install water filtration systems in his home and... Mm-hmm. Um, And speaking about, like, power dynamics, like, we were talking about the Dakota Access Pipeline, and that was um, a ongoing conflict that recently um, reached uh, reached a conclusion after many years. But um, the issue was that 
an oil pipeline was going to be like um, placed like through um, Sioux land um, and it was very harmful to the like to indigenous lands but also it was going to like completely destroy the environment surrounding those lands as well so not only are you disrespecting the land of the people who have been here before you which is horrendous but you're also going to make that land unlivable um for people to harvest their vegetation and have a safe environment and just avoid um being exposed to different toxins from these pipelines and it was a um really large legal but also just like a really large legal battle but also a huge um just like conflict be like in-person conflict between the state and um indigenous activists and allies who had come from all over the world um to Standing Rock to show support um exactly. for the Sioux tribe yeah and it and the environmental racism and physical environment um being taken away from indigenous communities in the United States is not anything new especially when it comes to culture and everyday practice there we're from the east coast and now in the united states most tribes and most reservations are in either the middle of the united states or on the west coast and that's not just oh these communities decided to move it they were pushed out um right. when people when the founding fathers of this country were colonizing this country and so a lot of the community and a lot of the food and just culture of these communities is rooted in a lot of the eastern parts of the country and now they don't have that anymore because their land is taken over um and so it's nothing new but i think what is really upsetting about the protests at standing rock and this pipeline is that again this pipeline was created here to bring back oil to the united states and create jobs and create money and save money but that was supposed to give jobs to the indigenous communities and to people in this area, but it didn't. And what the companies did in turn was set up camps for their own workers um, to move from site to site, and they were called quote-unquote man camps. And then it brought in high levels of sex trafficking and drug and alcohol-related crimes and other sexual violence against women and two-spirit people. And it was mostly and is mostly indigenous women at the front lines of these protests and mostly elders who carry the culture of these tribes. Um, and some people are still in jail. And because this legal battle just, I mean, it's still going on, but it just kind of reached some sort of resolution. And it brings up the points that we always talk about with decriminalizing marijuana. You know, it's decriminalized and people are making money off of it, mostly white people have youtube channels and recipes meanwhile mostly um black and brown people are still in jail and still in prison because of drug offenses with marijuana so it's just there's a lot and we'll link um different indigenous activist accounts to follow because they're doing amazing work too and they always have been since this i mean we'll forever but mostly with the dakota access pipeline and standing rock protests because they're on the front lines and they really have the truth about what's going on absolutely there's no better place to get the information than from the people directly leading the cause 
And actually, when you were talking about um, marijuana and how it's just being, like, kind of glorified by white people suddenly after it being demonized by white people for so many years, that reminds me of, like, how different places are opening up different dispensaries and cities and that leads us into our final topic of um, today, which is gentrification and how it directly affects and displaces uh, BIPOC um, black indigenous people of color all the time, constantly, every single day. Um, people are losing their homes because the prices are going up. And why are the prices going up? Because, quote unquote, more affluent people are moving to, quote unquote, cheaper areas and business owners want to take advantage of that and raise the prices of everything. So people who have been living on these, either if it's a, if it's a community or if it's a city, um, who've been living in these neighborhoods for years, um, suddenly their supermarket is raising everything by like, just for example, just say like $5. Okay, but you, you know, your normal order is going to have 20 things that you pick up from the grocery store. And now your bill is like so much higher than it's ever been before. Oh, wait, and now your grocery store that you go to all the time is closing because the Trader Joe's is opening up down the street, and it's all connected. It's all connected because of these places being seen as, like, hidden gems or, like, um, and what does that mean? Like, it means a hidden gem for, like, white people to come in and, like, kind of bulldoze it and start over when, like, there's people living there, and that's, that kind of is how I think of gentrification in my head. Um, but there's definitely so much more science, like, there's definitely, like, that's kind of an informal way to think about it. No, and it's, like, playgrounds and parks are supposed to be this community-building center of a town or a city, and even in D.C., for example, so many public, quote-unquote, parks are actually shut off from the community, and it's, like, what are people supposed to do? (laughs) <laughs> and pu- yeah. public transportation especially like georgetown i live near georgetown in virginia well georgetown's in dc but it's right by virginia um there's no metro stop and the citizens of georgetown do not want a metro stop there even though it's literally a desert like there's barely any way to get there um, because they don't want a metro stop there because they don't want people to have easy access to their part of the town like <laughs> right like gatekeeping almost yeah, um, they're part of the town, and the price of housing is um, price of housing and transportation is only increasing. I mean, I think about how cheap the subway used to be um, when I was younger, and now it's like two seventy five, I think, which like three dollars just to get across the city, which people have to do. Sometimes people have to do that multiple times a day, like in one day, to different places, not even just to and from home. Um, and then you end up getting a a monthly metro card. Yeah, absolutely. Like just going about your day-to-day life, um, you know, pre or post COVID, of course, (laughs) we're still like (laughs) in that mindset, but, um, yeah, like it's just making it inaccessible for people and that takes a toll on your health mentally because you're stressed out about finances, rightfully so physically because you physically cannot purchase food if you don't have the money to do so um and also too like this like um the stereotype of like unsafe neighborhoods is largely because of over policing we could definitely link some studies that prove that um have been working to disprove otherwise 
in the description as well of this episode, but um, if a neighborhood is constantly policed and you have to reach a quota of, um, of arrests or just citations being written, um, and say there's five police officers on the block and they all have to reach their quota, then they're going to, they're going to bring in five times the amount of people. Whereas where I live, I live in a predominantly white town. I see a cop probably like once a week, maybe, like maybe. Um, and then towards the end of the month, like a lot of people in the suburbs will be familiar with this towards the end of the month. They always say, be careful when you're driving because everyone has to reach their parking citation quota and people get pulled over for tickets. So it's basically like that, but like times every day of the month. Um, for quote unquote unsafe neighborhoods, which is and not coded, just parking tickets, it becomes not like, just parking tickets, like just life, like incredibly harsher, like arrests and like unsafe neighborhoods is just coded for is like racist code for like where black and brown people live, um, and like for a lot of people this isn't new information, but if it is, that's okay. That's what the triage is here for. Like, we're acknowledging our privilege and we want to use our space to, to talk about things that we should all already know about. But unfortunately, due to the way that our school systems are created, which we're going to talk about in our next episode, so stay tuned for that, um, we're, we're purposely omitted that information. Yep. And a lot of this will sound repetitive, but that's because all of this is linked. Like we talked about food yes, deserts in this I episode. Always think we talked about, about education and that's just because it's all linked together. And we wanted to start with environment and physical space because that really is the root of everything, especially in a country where we are not the original people from this land. And so everything that has been built from that stands on a lot of um, mistreatment of many groups in terms of the environment that they're living in so yeah yeah like if we think about it really quickly before we wrap up neighborhood and physical environment okay how is education connected where is your school located can you reach it really easily um can you do you have to get there by bus can you walk or do you have to drive food do you have healthy food options in your neighborhood or is it unhealthy food options um do you rely on school for your food Yes, there you go. Education, food, and neighborhood all linked in one thought. Like mm-hmm. community. Do you have do you feel safe in your community? In terms of just like feeling close to your community members, healthcare, can you physically reach a doctor's office if you need to? And economic stability, like do you feel that you could afford to live in your area or are the prices raising dr- drastically because of different um acts of injustice such as gentrification so that's just all of the social determinants of health like linking back to neighborhood and physical environment under like a minute I would say um and it goes so much deeper than that and everything is linked just like Christy said exactly so thanks everyone for listening and check out our Instagram page at the triage to get some more information and share the infographics that we'll be posting in tandem with this episode to give you a visual representation of what this looks like and yeah stay tuned 